Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. American politics increasingly do not address many of the big issues that we face. The clearest example is how information technology is radically changing, how we need to think about national security, our economic well-being, and even American culture. Sea changes are happening in matters like crime, privacy rights, and even the financial security of local governments. The rapid rise in the power of information technology means that issues like economics, culture, and national security are no longer separate. Joining me to help understand this is Klon Kitchen, who leads tech policy at the Heritage Foundation as its Senior Fellow for Technology, National Security, and Science. Klon steers an enterprise-wide interdisciplinary effort to understand and to shape the growing convergence of policy issues. Before joining Heritage, Klon was National Security Advisor to Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, he also served more than 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community, working on counterterrorism, counterproliferation, covert action, and cyber issues. Klon, welcome. It's my pleasure. Before we get into convergence, um, 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community, um, maybe we can start with what you're doing and what, what's counterproliferation all about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so again, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so my career in the intelligence community is, uh, it can't be separated from 9-11. So 9-11 happened. Um, I had recently graduated with a theology philosophy degree from a classical liberal arts school. Great, great, great training for counterintelligence. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, honestly, I was given a, an intellectual toolkit uh, yeah. to think well. I'm very thankful for that. <clears throat> but 9-11 happened. Uh, at the time, I had been doing some kind of low-level writing on, on terrorism issues, and I had recently applied to the FBI to be a counterterrorism uh, agent before 9-11. So this was an interest of mine. When 9-11 happened, um, I got recruited into the Department of Defense. The early years of my career uh, were spent doing uh, the high-value targeting mission, looking for terrorist bad guys, uh, deploying to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and other areas of of the world. Uh, as you mentioned, I eventually, uh, especially when my wife and I started having a family, decided that running around the globe with my hair on fire was perhaps not the best use of my time. And uh, I transitioned and I started running programs for other agencies, including counterproliferation, which on that was um, trying to prevent the spread and illegal use of weapons, particularly uh, chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. And there are a host of both offensive and defensive programs that we do to uh, minimize that threat. And one of the things that you did was you, were, and this sort of bears on what we're going to talk about today, you were coordinating among all the agencies mm -hmm. a, a, a policy or strategies to, to go after uh, threats. Yeah, one of the peculiarities of my career is that um, my entire career was in a, in a joint environment, which means that... Um, Prior to 9-11, it was the norm for an intelligence official to spend the overwhelming majority of their career within their agency and to work almost exclusively with that agency. 9-11 demonstrated the need to have a more integrated 
uh, comprehensive approach toward analysis. And I was that first generation of, uh, of Intel professionals who kind of built that culture and came up into that culture. And that's just, that's just the way I kind of think and breathe now. That's a great background for your current project. I hope so. You gave a testimony to the uh, Senate uh, Judiciary Committee earlier this week, cybersecurity threats to uh, corporate and personal data. Mm -hmm. I guess Josh Hawley was there and Sheldon Whitehouse. That's right. Among others. What uh, would you tell them? Yeah, so it was, a, it was, a, it was an important uh, committee hearing, and um, the kind of presenting fact was the growing uh, popularity of a Chinese uh, app called TikTok. TikTok is a, um, it's a social media app. It allows users to do funny videos where they lip sync videos, and they have different filters, and they can do all kinds of messages and that kind of thing. Um, but it's exceedingly popular amongst American youth. In fact, uh, American teenagers have adopted that uh, even more than Facebook over the last several months. So it's a, it's a growing trend. Well, the challenge with it is that it is a uh, Chinese um, app. And because, and what I was explaining to the committee is that because of Chinese cyber law, that means inescapably that any data that is being captured by that app, and it is capturing a lot of data, is automatically fed back to uh, Chinese servers. And because it's on Chinese servers and because it's a Chinese company, that means that the Chinese government has access to that information. And so the particular application is a concern, and we talked about that at length, but I was trying to make the point that there's actually a broader concern that, that this is going to be the case with with essentially any Chinese company precisely because of the way the Chinese government works and integrates with their... Well, all, all, all significant Chinese companies are tightly integrated and controlled with the uh, Chinese Communist Party. By design. And, uh, I mean, this TikTok <clears throat> sounds like a Trojan horse. It sounds like a great way to gather lots of data about lots of Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean there's no doubt that it's all, it, it is a moneymaker. I mean, there's, there's a legitimate kind of commercial side to it, yeah. but... It absolutely feeds a, a double need in terms of the uh, exfiltration of data. Well, you, you're a, your focus is on security, and you mentioned a couple things in here. You had three big issues, cybercrime, mm -hmm. cyber-enabled economic warfare, mm -hmm. and uh, I think we have ransomware as the third one. Uh, cyber-enabled economic warfare, I, the, would TikTok be a part of that? Yeah, uh, that's really the core thing, and that's what I emphasized in my opening statement was um, the use of technical and, and uh, the tech industry as a means of exfiltrating American strength, both in terms of data and economics. So when we talk about state actors, is, is China, uh, all we hear about is Russia, and I, I guess I'm less concerned about Russia because yeah. what's their economy about the size of, of, of California, maybe smaller? Yeah, oh yeah, and I often refer to Russia as a, as a, a declining state with a growing authoritarianism. Okay. That's... <laughs> How I think of Which them. can be lethal Which and, and dangerous, but it's right. not nearly as big as well organized as as, uh, as China. So what's the uh, so in terms of state actors mm -hmm. in, in cyber warfare, are we talking basically China, or are there other uh, what's going on in that world of yeah, so, cyber <clears throat> warfare? Yeah, well, so in the, it's a great question because the world of cyber warfare and and kind of geopolitical cyber is a pretty active world right now. So. There's a great deal of engagement that's happening online between nation states. Uh, China, the challenge with cyber is that it's a pretty diverse 
threat spectrum. So Russia's a real concern in <clears throat> certain categories. You know, so if we actually, if, it, if we started going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Russia, uh, you know, their cyber capability is going to be a real concern, and we got to be smart about that. Same thing with North Korea, same thing with uh, Iran. The reason why the United States tends to speak about China differently is because with China, it's so much more than just cyber. China is the, in my view, systemic peer competitor that we have to be worried about. And unlike Russia, and unlike Iran, and unlike North Korea, China is deeply integrated into our economy and to other aspects of our national strength. And so it requires uh, both nuance and increasingly some, some hard choices. Well, and I also, I, read, I believe this is right, but the United States, in terms of its military opponents, hasn't faced an economy of our own size since 1875. Yeah, that's right. And now as economy become as, as you know, a purchasing power, China is almost where we are right now. That's right. Yeah. So what China is able to do is <clears throat> it, it, it's able to increasingly, and we see this, I mean, the MBA example here recently is, is a great example where because of their economic power, they're the fastest growing marketplace in the world. Yeah. Um, and they are able to exert significant, you know, kind of soft power and influence uh, toward very real strategic geopolitical ends. And again, that that's more than in, than just kind of high-minded policy talk. That really affects like Americans, you know, so it affects how movies are made and what how China is portrayed in those movies. It affects what NBA managers and coaches can and cannot say about events like the Hong Kong protests. It it affects the the types of services and provisions that companies will provide to Americans. It's it's a type of influence that we have never allowed previously and that we ought never allow going forward. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Klon Kitchen, Heritage Foundation, and we're talking about uh, the pervasiveness of China's uh, efforts to, uh, uh, I would say, return us to their middle kingdom. Yeah, you know, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll put that in a little bit of context, right? Because one of the things I don't want to be accused, I don't have a problem with an economic uh, an economically prospering or socially prospering China in principle. I'm, I would like that. The challenge is, is that China has, um, it's like every other nation in the history of the world. It wants to amass and to wield influence for its own ends. And again, that's coherent and, and not novel. At the same time, it has made the decision, I think correctly, that to do that going forward, it's going to have to dominate uh, technology generally, and 10 industries specifically. Again, I think that's right. But what that means in their view is not some type of a um, compatible approach with the United States and with the Western world, but it's actually confrontational and they want to displace. That moves us into a realm of confrontation. Well, I mentioned the Middle Kingdom. I've, we've talked about this before here, but their view is that they have 3,000 years as an empire. Mm -hmm governed, ruled by an emperor, nope. very similar to what Xi would like to be now. They're not used to liberal democracy. Nope. And they view themselves as a, as, a, as, a, as a country, entity without borders. All the rest of the world's in comfort. And therefore, no other laws, no other national laws, no other country's laws, no other country's boundaries mm -hmm. are even to be respected with that worldview. 
Well, and one of the peculiarities of it is that they actually understand their nation to extend to every individual Chinese, right? So, th so they expect, they, they, the cultural expectation is that if you're Chinese, wherever you are in the world, that your um, responsibilities are to the Chinese nation, that your uh, authorities are the Chinese nation, and that you will act accordingly. And you see that in how they engage with their, their people overseas. So we have 350,000 Chinese students studying in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. They see them as part of the Chinese state. That's how the government would have them understand themselves. And with their surveillance systems, they can enforce that. They can certainly enforce that uh, domestically, Yeah. Uh, domestically within China. Um, in the United States, I think they're constrained somewhat, but it's, I mean, they're active. Any counterintelligence professional would tell you that China is exceedingly active in the United States. The more I learn about China, the more I grow both alarmed and confused. They're, they're, uh, 300 million Chinese children are learning English yep. because one of the barriers, I guess, they feel and Singapore did this. He, the, the head of Singapore decided that Mandarin or whatever the language was wasn't good enough for science and business. And, and so he has everybody learning English. Now Singapore speaks English. China's moving in that direction. Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, again, part of, if, if you want to exercise the type of in, global influence that the United States has enjoyed, uh, that means that you have to be able to participate in kind of the lingua franca. You know, you, you've got to be able to... Uh, have a global language, both in economics and um, kind of politics. Well, the Chinese, we, we, we talk about the Chinese Communist Party, but they're not really using communism anymore as the, as the spur for people's ambition or the country's ambition. They're using the century of humiliation. Mm. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a profound sense of, of grievance. And, and you hit on this earlier. I mean, China's been around for a long time. And... This is not the first time where that nation has tried to reassert itself globally. They've gone through these cycles before, and any honest reading of history would show that they've done so successfully. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, the points I try to make, I, I made it in the testimony, I make it in these types of conversations, is that the United States is not inevitable. It's the type of thing that must be secured, it must be defended, it must be considered. The Chinese are certainly doing that in the context of their nation. And while I don't think conflict is inevitable or inescapable, the reality is, is that um, we have a very focused challenger who is capable, historically proven, and shows all of the um, strengths that are going to be necessary uh, to, to achieve many of the objectives that they're kind enough to lay out for us. So how, are they, how are they using the technology, the, the cyber warfare against us? They're, when you're one of a U.S.-based corporation, you go to China, mm -hmm. and they say to, well, if you want, you, sure, come on in, but we've got to join your board, and maybe you have to hand over all your IP. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> uh, standard operating procedure for doing business in China includes um, they require you to do a joint venture. So if you want to be a business in China, that means that you have to have a business arrangement with a domestic Chinese partner. Uh, you have to turn over intellectual property. You have to have members of the CCP um, as a board within your company to ensure that any decisions that are made are in keeping with the CCP's, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, with, with their objectives and, and what they're trying to do. Um, and now, beginning in January, there's going to be a new cybersecurity law that also requires uh, 
all companies, including foreign-owned companies, to uh, build their networks in such a way as to where the Chinese government, both their law enforcement and intelligence apparatus, has near unfettered digital access to all communications, all trade secrets, essentially every bit and byte of data that either resides on Chinese servers or transits Chinese servers. So uh, what, what, what companies used to do is they kept their information on their own servers and, or v, and their VPNs. VP, yeah, these virtual private networks were essentially e encrypted communications lines, and they would just do all business on those, and theoretically the Chinese government wouldn't have kind of ready access to that. And now... Uh, That's illegal. <laughs> now, and as of January, that would be, mm -hmm. as of January 2020, that will be illegal. There will be no place to hide. So how are companies reacting to this? What is, uh, you, uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on is we're talking about things that most people are not talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, this is my yet, job. Th yet this is, this is, this is huge. Mm -hmm. And we have how many companies doing business with, in China? How many technology companies? A couple thousand? Mm -hmm. Oh, easy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and so all of their intellectual property, to hold it inside China, is illegal. So, I mean, this seems... I mean, what do you do if you're... I, I, it seems, you well, no, it seems existential. I, no, I, mean, I think your response is exactly right. That's the well, way I... What, what's happening? <laughs> it's the same response. terrible. Well, my first response was when I started reading through this, was like, okay, I'm obviously not understanding something. I, I, maybe I don't get this. Maybe there's some nuance to this that I'm not picking up on. Uh, but uh, in my engagement with, you know, IP experts, trade experts, uh, uh, economists, and, 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 and security experts, it's... It's inescapable. In fact, if you go back and watch the video of my testimony, there's a representative from Microsoft there. Microsoft has a huge presence in China. The video's on Google. The Google, no, uh, video's I, on, on YouTube. YouTube. Yep, yep. And you can also get it, uh, I think, from the uh, Senate Judiciary website. Great. It was riveting. I mean, it was very, very good. Well, but one of the things you'll note is that the Microsoft uh, representative doesn't dispute any of the assertions I'm making. So there's, there's no dispute about what I'm saying this law does, right? This is... It's clear because people have to comply. Now, what I think companies are doing is, is I suspect that they will test it initially. They'll, they'll try to resist it to the degree that they can. And if the Chinese enforce it the way I think they're going to, well, then they'll have to think about, are there alternative mechanisms? But that's going to be difficult. And then finally, I think they're going to be forced into a decision. Now, some, I suspect, will actually interpret this as an opportunity because in the past, they had to deal with the, the idea of, well, if the Chinese government comes asking for information, I now have a hard choice that I have to make. Do I give it to them or don't I? Under this new regime, however, the government's just going to get it. And so... The government's just going to... The government is going to have digital access to this information by design, which means they don't necessarily have to ask for it, which means <clears throat> if a company was so inclined... They could make themselves sleep at night by saying, "Well, we never gave anything to the government. They never even asked." All the while, not all the while knowing that the government was getting it all. And we're, we're wandering all over this, but this was an, this is a big security issue because massive. we have U.S.-based companies acting like they're global companies, not acting like they're American companies. Mm -hmm. At the same time, putting America security at grave risk. Well, and that's so. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly, I made that point, just that these companies, look, there is a rationale for why a company wants to go to China. I get it. It's a huge marketplace. It's, it's, a, it's a growing marketplace. But the reality is, is that 
as they make these decisions, they're making decisions that affect more than their bottom line. These things have implications for American economic competitiveness, American data streams, uh, American national security ultimately. And up until you know here recently, we've tried to keep uh, a lot of these different issues as separate you know silos of of issues. And the reality is is that they're intermingling in a way that won't allow us to do that anymore. You're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Claude Kitchen of Heritage Foundation, and we're talking about uh, an alarming new law that the Chinese are about to implement, which will require all U.S. companies operating in China to turn over, turn over all their uh, intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think these are the things that, um, that companies are going to have to face. One of the points I try to make, too, as I have conversations with these companies, is that I don't want this. This is not something that, that we want to happen, and, and I understand how it makes their business and their decisions more difficult, especially as the U.S. government starts to turn an eye on this and, and really turn the screw. Um, but at the same time, I don't get, I don't have, as a national security professional, I don't have the luxury of denying reality. Um, my fellow citizens, my nation depends on me having a clear most eyed of our Most of our political class does. I mean, why, why, why should you single yourself out? Well, <laughs> you know, I can only speak for myself. You know, I mean, like, I, I look, the thing that makes this important. Well, that's right why now, I wanted to talk with yeah. you because this is something everybody should know about. I certainly, I certainly agree with you. The, uh, um, they're, but they're not just taking property or intellectual property there. They're taking it here, too. What's happening with the in, intrusion and our mm -hmm. cyber realities here? Yeah, so Chinese theft of intellectual property in the United States continues. Um, under the Obama administration, we had uh, apparently signed a, a, memor a memorandum of understanding with the Chinese government. Uh, we blew through that pretty quickly. It doesn't seem to have had any real meaningful impact in terms of their theft of IP. This is something that the president articulates as one of his, one of his justifications for uh, his posture toward China. I know that it's a, a key negotiating point uh, with uh, our representatives and the Chinese representatives that, that there has to be a demonstrable decline in Chinese theft of, of American IP. But part of this goes back to my point about China's intentions in terms of reasserting itself. So the Chinese industrial base for decades wasn't anywhere near what the United States was in terms of technology, in emerging technology. And one of the ways that they thought that they would leapfrog the United States was to skip the, the burdensome process of research design, testing, research design, testing, and evaluation, and just steal intellectual property from the United States and implement it. Well, they've done that long enough and well enough to where they're legitimately innovating on their own now. They're still stealing all kinds of information from us, but they're not nearly as dependent on that theft as they once were. And that's why you have, you know, four of the big 10 global tech companies are Chinese now. And uh, they are real market players. They have U.S. tech companies worried. And uh, I think that that's a, uh, a well-placed concern. Well, we're talking about the economic impact, but this is also a national security issue yes. because one of the things that they've done over there in China is every Chinese company is required to give over all their information mm -hmm. and cooperate with the, whatever the government does. And they link economic warfare with, with uh, kinetic warfare. That's right. So that's actually one of the interesting things that uh, is, is true about that is that 
that's the way the United States has thought about these things for a long time too. That that economics is an element of uh, national power, like we, we, military, diplomacy, information, economics. You know, there's even an acronym called DIME. You know, so the idea of of economics being separate from national security or from national power, that's peculiar in terms of uh, history, uh, certainly in terms of American history. Uh, the Chinese certainly understand that. Now, the, the key distinctive is, is that they are arranging a partnership between their government and uh, their industry that it's called civil military fusion, and that's just a, it takes it to a whole new level. And I don't think the United States should try to out China China in that regard. Uh, that, that's not my objective. My point is, is that we don't get to deny that they're doing that. We understand it's a violation of everything that we hold sacred and, and how we view economics. But my high view of economics and that separation doesn't allow me to deny the reality of what they're doing. And we have to build policies that recognize and roll that reality back because it creates distortions in the global marketplace. Well, the leadership makeup of China is worth getting into. I've, mm. I've done this before, but it's worth repeating. The Politburo, the Chinese leadership, they all come up through a rigorous system of, like the Mandarins used to, the test after test, year after year We're after fine. year. It's almost like the Frenchy coal system. So mm. by the time you get into leadership, you've sort of been stamped as having 130 to 160 IQ. And they're not trained in the law. Right. They're trained in STEM, science, technology, mm -hmm. engineering, math. And so they think like engineers. They're trained to think in terms of process and systems and to think long-term. Yep. And, you know, I was at a White House event recently, and, you know, there were 20 senators there, and there were 19 lawyers. And uh, we are just, our mindset's completely different. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it can be easy to, to be lulled into the position that China is 10 feet tall and bulletproof and, and that they're, uh, you know, human machines that are thinking on these different levels. And I don't think that's true at all. I think they have some, some systemic challenges that they're facing, even in terms of their form of governments and, and, and the, the, the system that you're describing. <clears throat> that being said, they are patient. They do think systematically. And the types of strategies that they've been rolling out and that President Xi articulates, they're coherent. I mean, that's the thing is like they're not guaranteed success any more than we're guaranteed failure. But the reality is, is that only a fool would deny that they have intentions, that they have capabilities and that they have plans and that those things are coherent with one another. Well, that's the definition of threat. Well, let's talk about 5G. OK. What is that? Let's use that as an example of what's happening. Yeah. Let's talk about 5G. Do yeah. you want to want to elaborate on what, what, what the issues are there? Yeah, it's the perfect example. <clears throat> so when we talk about 5G, what we mean is fifth-generation wireless technology. And the key point there is that 5G is more than faster phones. Uh, 5G is best understood as the central nervous system of the new digital economy. Everything is going to connect to this. It is the thing that makes 5G so amazing is that the, the central constraint on innovation up until this point has been compressed data pipes, meaning we have all these sensors around us that are producing all this information, but up until this point, you can only put so much data through those pipes. 
5G greatly expands those pipes. We're now going to be able to put through a lot more data, and that's going to have all kinds of follow-on impacts. Okay. Well, over the last several decades, um, our market, global economy, has seen that um, Chinese companies like Huawei uh, are building very real, capable 5G wireless technical capabilities. Their stuff works. Um, Part of the reason that they've been able to do that is because the Chinese government has stolen quite a bit of intellectual property. Huawei itself has stolen a lot of IP. And uh, so they've put together a pretty, good, a pretty good offering. On top of that, the Chinese government has um, funded and supplemented uh, Huawei. It has enabled them in terms of uh, contract negotiations through espionage. It has provided seed money and done a whole host of things. Well, this has made them very competitive. And our and, response and, and, to that, and just less, to put a, yeah. a, a, something uh, visual on it, the campus of Huawei mm -hmm. is enormous. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's like a couple miles of just. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's their version of kind of a Google campus or a Facebook campus. I mean, and they, all the buildings are American style. They're, it's like a selection of architecture from around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, Huawei is a is a formidable company. They stand on the cusp of realizing as much as fifty percent of the global five G. Yeah marketplace. But so the, my, my, my you know, kind of final point there is that Huawei has become what it is because it's been supported by the Chinese government and because U.S. firms said, well, we can get this cheaper and more efficiently by allowing Chinese companies like Huawei to, to build these capabilities. And so as 5G's begun rolling out, national security professionals started looking at this and said, wait a minute, there's a, there's a real problem here. This is going to impact our, our domestic cybersecurity. But then we looked around and said, well, wow, we don't really have a good alternative. And that's why the bell has been ringing on A this. good alternative to the Chinese to Huawei. Uh, sub subcontractors. Precisely. Yeah. And so that's why the bell's been ringing, is we've realized, okay, we now find ourselves in a place where um, the economy has evolved in such a way as to where we have a glaring national security gap. How are we going to fix that? Culturally, we're not really equipped to, I mean, we don't, one of our, Good characteristics is we don't mark and lock stuff all that well. No, right. Which I like. Yeah, it's but great. when you're dealing with something like this, you need a concerted effort. Mm -hmm. What's happening on the front? I mean, how do you see this playing out with 5G? Well, with 5G, the, the administration's acted uh, pretty aggressively. You know, we put out, um, it was probably about four or five months ago, we put out a, a paper at Heritage. Uh, I was one of the authors uh, on on taking China as a threat when it comes to 5G. And it was only a, a couple of days later that the administration rolled out a series of executive orders on that issue. Um, so what they did was they took Huawei and many of its subsidiaries and put them on what's called the U.S. Treasury's entity list, which means that they can't do certain types of business in the U.S. and U.S. companies can't supply them with certain materials. Uh, Congress is currently exploring ways that Huawei equipment can be what's called ripped and replaced in local telecommunications networks. Uh, and uh, we're trying to think about um, alternative suppliers for the kind of key technologies of 5G. So we're talking to people like um, Nokia, Ericsson, and, and other providers. But just to be kind of honest and transparent about that, that, that won't alleviate the challenge because so much of the supply chain, even for trusted providers like Nokia and Ericsson, still goes through China. So we will mitigate a significant portion of the threat by taking the actions we're taking. But there's a broader systemic threat to the degree that um, technical supply chains run through China. 
it's it's still a it's well. That's a, true in every industry. Exactly at right. This point. I mean, exactly that, right. Yeah. They're no longer making QP dolls. They're <laughs> no. <laughs> it's evolved. No, they're making quantum chips. Yeah. We need to talk about quantum as well. <laughs> yeah. But you're not. A, you're also though not recommending that we set up our own national 5G network. Yeah, there, there was, was some. There's been. There's been some talk about that. That's right. At one point, there was a there was a, a proposal. It was it was headed up by a, a, a then director on the National Security Council, and it was really just floated as you know among the alternative approaches to this that we could nationalize 5G. Um, I am, in one sense, sympathetic with the underlying concerns that would lead someone toward that. I just don't think it would work. I don't think that it would. Um, think Amtrak. Right. Exactly. Right. You know. I mean, when it comes to national security, you know, I, I'm pretty aggressive, yeah. um, but I'm about outcomes, and, and I don't think that that would have generated the outcome we wanted. Who's leading, who's leading on this issue? In what sense? I'm sorry. The... In terms of saying, okay, 5G is an issue. We need to solve it. We need our own robust system. We can't let China do it. Do we have a, a champion in government? Do we mm -hmm. have, who, who would that be? Yeah, so the White House is heavily involved in this. The yeah. FCC is heavily involved in this. Yeah. Um, Chairman Pai has recently come out with a, a, a number of orders. Of, yeah, that's the Jeet Pai. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he's good on this. He is. And, um, you know, we have regular engagement with him on those things. Uh, and so um, I actually think that this is an issue where um, – the nation has a pretty clear-eyed, shared understanding. There doesn't seem to be a lot of resistance on this, whether it be in industry or, or elsewhere. Um, now it's just coming down to the hard choices of, okay, what do we do and how do we do it? Well, the, th the Trump administration does not get enough credit for what they're doing with China and trade. This mm -hmm. idea that, well, if we can't have aluminum tariffs. This is not about aluminum tariffs. This is about the whole fabric of our relationship. That's right. And they seem to get that. I think that's right. And if you look... The president actually enjoys bipartisan support on his approaches to China. So mm -hmm. Chuck Schumer has come out and praised the president for his hardline approaches to, to China. Uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi has done similar things. You may have to say that twice for me to believe it, but that's true. It's <laughs> I true. It's I mean, true. Well, has Xi overplayed his hand? I mean, President Xi, uh, president of China, styles himself to be the, uh, the Mao rein reincarnated yeah. or an emperor. Yeah. And... He's, he's spoken very boastfully about very many things. He's mm -hmm. talked about how, uh, I think, uh, high technology needs to be the sharp end of the spear, and we need to keep sharpening it faster than our... They, they, they have something called a... Anyway, I can't remember what the... But he's come out, and I think, I think had he kept a lower profile and boasted less about all this, we might not have caught on. Or is that not true? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean... <clears throat> Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one to predict. What I'll say is this, is that he's definitely walking a tightrope, um, but some of it is, um, is unavoidable. Because on the one hand, if all he was trying to do was avoid kind of American awareness, well, then, yeah, you would keep a low profile. At the same time, he has to motivate his population and his government to kind of get in line. And so that means going public and being loud on a couple of things. And the reality is, is that um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, just, just to be a to be a strategic leader at the level where he's trying to lead requires a balancing act. I respect him in the sense of I think he's capable, I think he's thoughtful, and I think he's committed. I disagree with virtually everything he's pursuing, um, but it would be a mistake in my view for us to underestimate him. You're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm talking with Klon Kitchen of the Heritage Institute, and we're talking about China and President Xi and and uh, his strategies. So I sort of 
I mean, we could spend maybe a couple of days talking oh, yeah. about China. Uh, but there's another big thing that you mentioned in your report, which is cybercrime. Mm -hmm. And huge. It's huge. Talk about that. So uh, there have been a number of assessments done, one of which is, is cited in the report, um, that uh, global cybercrime is expected to reach $6 trillion annually in losses. And that, that, that's... That is an amazing number. By comparison, I, I, I don't have the exact number. Yeah. The U.S. economy is about $18 trillion. Yeah. yeah, something like that, yeah. So it would be a third of the U.S. economy. And in, in, in global cybercrime losses annually. Yeah, it's and big. That, and that's about, I mean, that would be double. It's already at $3 trillion. That's right. That's right. Yeah, by 2021, I think, is when that, when that number is supposed to kind of fully realize. So what, break this down for me. What do we, what? How, how does that money, how's that money being taken and, yeah. and who are the actors and who are the victims? So it's cumulative. It's, it's everything from, you know, actual stealing money. So, you know, for example, North Korea uh, was using the international banking um, system SWIFT and, and intercepting uh, millions of dollars. And that's one of the ways that they fund their, their kingdom. Um, but it's also the loss of IP and uh, the loss of... Um, uh, of, of capital and of, and of profits when companies are shut down or when they have data loss or, uh, you know, when, so for example, Equifax, the, um, the uh, personal credit monitoring agency or scoring agency had a huge data breach. Uh, and that had secondary and, and tertiary impacts on all kinds of companies. Um, separate but related is the, is the ransomware attack. Um, the international shipping company Maersk like a billion dollar loss because of uh so ransomware is you're not actually taking the money you're just shutting somebody's system down and you're saying well yeah. you know if you if you'd like if you'd like to have your computers back right give us x amount of uh money well so yeah there's so there's layers to ransomware so that's the typical way ransomware works where yeah you lock people out of their systems and local governments are the ones that are getting oh they're the ones it. Yeah, it used to be individuals yeah and now local governments and municipalities are really the kind of key targets uh, Baltimore's been hit. There were like 21 or 22 different municipalities in Texas that were hit simultaneously. And uh, yeah, it's, it's straight up ransomware. But with the, with the one I was mentioning there in terms of uh, Maersk, which was the WannaCry uh, attack, it was actually what's called wiperware, which means that it pretends to be ransomware that, hey, you know, pay this money and you'll get it back. But what it actually does is it destroys the data. There's no getting it back. And that was, that was done by Russia. And uh, it cost an uh, international shipping company, you know, a billion plus dollars. So you make a point, and I'll let you finish this sentence. We are innovating faster than we can secure. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so when I say we're innovating faster than we can secure, that's both a, uh, that's an organic reality to our kind of free enterprise system, which is great. Um, you know, we, we are a permissionless innovation environment, which means... If you are an entrepreneur, if you're a creative, if you're an engineer and you want to come up with a cool thing, you don't need anybody's permission. You can just do it. And that creates this amazing and dynamic environment where people can do amazing things. And that's awesome. Um, at the same time, it's also a choice that we've made where we have willfully sidestepped and ignored some of the security implications of our innovations. Um, and have chosen to absorb the risk that comes with them rather than kind of slow down what people would call progress or innovation. That's a, um, that's a choice that we've made as well. And 
for a long time, that choice has been largely without cost or costs that were manageable. It now looks like that may not be the case much longer. Well, the impact of this is enormous. You write that 43% of global businesses were victim of a cybersecurity breach within the last year. Mm -hmm. um, 83% of finance companies get hit by 50 cyber attacks per month. Yeah. Um, and you, what they do is they get in, they into the system, they remain undetected, and they stay there for six to 12 months while they gather this up. Yeah. So typically, uh, you know, a uh, a threat actor will be in someone's system for six to 12 months before they're ever even recognized. Average cost one and a half to eight million dollars per attack. Yeah, and that's the average. So you're you're factoring in a whole host of, of smaller activities, but the bigger ones are massive. Well, I know you've been telling them about this at Heritage because mm -hmm. whenever I email you, my emails bounce. <laughs> yeah, sorry about Heritage that. is not letting anybody in. I got to imagine. I can tell somebody about that. And I'm sure we can get that fixed. Well, it's uh, it's I I. I but it's, uh, you know, and, and the big companies, I think you mentioned Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they can, yeah. they're spending about a billion a year on this. Well, that's the thing is like, look, I'm not afraid to kind of push in on these companies a little bit, especially when it comes to China. But the reality is, is that there's no one spending more on cybersecurity than these companies. It's an existential challenge for them. And they know that. Now, are these state actors or these or non-state actors or are they just crooks that are, you know, yes. doing this? Yes. All three. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's everybody. The. The cyber domain is a very crowded domain, and uh, it's individuals, it's nations, it's cyber syndicates. So th they're, they're a whole kind of hacking groups, international individuals who operate um, coherently with each other to steal money, steal IP. Sometimes they're enlisted by government. Sometimes they're operating on their own. I mean, it's... So we've got a, maybe a couple million hackers worldwide that are... Uh... Yeah, it's hard to know. I haven't seen any kind of real reliable assessments. Now, whatever the number is, the kind of the elite group, the, the people who with whom we'd be really concerned, that's a relatively small number still. Yeah. Um, but uh, the thing about about this domain is that you don't have to have large numbers to be impactful. One person or a small group of people can have a catastrophic impact. This is... Uh... So on this front, uh, we talked about a line of action on 5G. Mm -hmm. What's our line of action on cybersecurity? Yeah, and, you know, I, I do want to, be, be, you know, before I'm dismissed, I do want to have, I think there's some things to be optimistic about. But when we talk about cybersecurity, it's pretty easy to get kind of pretty negative pretty quickly. But, you know, one of the president, one of the things that this president okay, did. We'll save, we'll save the last 15 minutes for, for, for happy. That's right. <laughs> I could use that too. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's a discipline I have to kind of impose on myself. But yeah. um, so one of the first things that the president did when he came in was he actually uh, issued a new executive order that uh, greatly expanded the freedom to operate of our, um, our cyber personnel, people I affectionately refer to as cyber ninjas. Um, and they have been much more aggressive over the last uh, 12 to 18 months in terms of um, preventing and disputing uh, hostile cyber actions, and, uh, and they're very good at it. Um, this is a key priority across the government. Um, the, the challenges or, the, or the, the mitigating factor for this is not people's awareness anymore. It's just the slowness of government and the agility of government to 
Well, and the ability for government to be able to afford to hire people. It's, yeah, yeah getting not, talent. I mean, they're competing with the wealthiest companies. You know, I, I, I worked on transition for, for Donald Trump mm -hmm. between the time, I think, August before the election through the inaugural, and I was responsible for the financial agencies. Mm -hmm. And one of the fun thing, one of the fun jobs I gave myself was to be the team, lead the team that went into the IRS because I'd been, I'd been on record that you know. IRS is terrible. I get rid of it. I was uninformed. You know, it's a pretty stupid thing to say, but I said it. Um, I go into the IRS, and I see a lot of fairly well-intentioned people trying mm -hmm. to do their job, get the things done, and they've been massively underfunded because of the lowest learner thing and stealing and yep. keeping the Tea Party people from getting their C3 and C4s. Um, so they're starved, their budget's starved, they probably have 10,000 people fewer than they need, but their systems budget is tremendously under, underfunded. Oh, yeah. It's archaic. And they can't afford to hire people because the private companies around the Beltway can pay a lot more than the, uh, than the IRS can. Well, and it's even worse than that, honestly, because when I was a... So I became a fan of the IRS, <laughs> sort of. Right, right. <laughs> Until I the, get a letter from them. One of the... Uh, one of the things I experienced as, as I was in my career in the government was I used to be able to go to technical experts and say, hey, listen, I can't pay you what you'll get somewhere else, but you can do patriotic work and I'll give you a cool mission and you'll do some really great stuff. Toward the end of my career, when I would give that pitch to someone, there was a couple of times where they looked at me and said, hey, I appreciate that, but I'm not sure working for the federal government is my patriotic duty. It may be more patriotic working for you know, tech company X, and then they do have the coolest stuff out there, not you. And that was a real challenge. Yeah. You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Klon Kishin from Heritage Foundation, and we're talking about cybercrime and, and the talent that we need to, uh, to fight it. Hmm. Now, I know we're going to get around to optimistic and, yep. and positive things, but we're talking about talent and patriotic work. Brings me back to Google. Okay. Or not back to Google, back to China. And... Google employees, I think last year, circulated a petition that they didn't want uh, Google working on a project that the Defense Department was running on artificial intelligence. Project Maven. And I don't want to get into what that was, but it just the Google employees said, we're not going to work for the Defense Department because we do not want to be in support of war or... Yeah, they said it would, it, that doing so <clears throat> violated their, their ethical standards. Google's working in China. Uh, it is certainly trying to, yeah. Yeah, so look, one of the challenges is a number of these companies, when they're called before Congress, they say we're an American company. But in terms of the ethos that they cultivate, in terms of the way they talk about themselves everywhere else, they identify as global companies. And they absolutely hire globally. I mean, they have you know, human capital pipelines that truly transit the, the earth. Um, and Google is, is, is got a particular challenge because they have self, um, they, they have intentionally built a culture of, of kind of questioning, right? So every Friday they have these, these all hands meetings that they call, you know, thank, thank God it's Friday or thank goodness it's Friday, TGF Fridays, where an intern can stand up and rail against the CEO of the company. And that's a, that's a. That's a culture they've cultivated. 
And so when any group of their comp, uh, of, of their employees gets together and doesn't like something, they can generate the type of thing like they did on, on Project Maven. And uh, the, the company's leadership has shown themselves to be very responsive to that, which only invites more. Um, the problem is, is that so many of their employees, uh, to quote Reagan, it's not that they don't know anything, it's just that so much of what they know is wrong. Yes. So their perspective on um, Project Maven was just fundamentally wrong. It was an image recognition algorithm that certainly had, you know, what we can call lethal applications, but it went far beyond that. I mean, it's the ability of a, of a drone to, to fly over, uh, a, you know, a hurricane disaster area and identify individuals uh, so that we could, you know, put resources toward rescuing them yeah. or helping them. It's a drone flying over an area ahead of a convoy and automatically recognizing IEDs and, and other problems. Well, we, you know, I've raised this at the outset. This is where I think the whole economic national security also interact with the culture wars. Yes. Because we've got culture in Silicon Valley that's decidedly left, decidedly progressive. Uh, in many ways, doesn't really like America. Hmm. And yet we're asking them and want these companies to help defend America. And increasingly, they don't want to do it. Or am I overstating that? Well, I mean, they would say you're overstating it. I think the challenge is, is that it's unclear. I get to do it. I don't have to. <laughs> well, but I, the point that they should take back from that is that, well, it's unclear. Yeah. Right? That it's, so what they, I, I imagine what they would say is, uh, well, no, we love America. We just don't think it should be what you're describing. Right? And so what we have is we have a conflict of worldviews. The problem is, if I can be frank with my friends in tech, their worldview is untethered to reality. Hmm. Right, so the, you know, the Project Maven thing ex example is 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 perfect in the sense of, I don't want war, I don't like war, I've fought in wars, I am very well aware of what the cost is and, and what that means, but I well, don't, you went you went through Sears School, I did. It's part of you know that's sort of the ultimate. Yeah. So and my point is, there are other people in the world who get a who get a vote on this. And it would not be moral and it would not be responsible for the United States to give up its constitutional required duty to be prepared for that. And so I can understand if a company doesn't want to participate in that, that's their freedom not to do it. But don't be surprised then when the government looks at you and is offended when you say working with it violates your ethical standards. So, I mean, you know, no one's forcing anyone to do anything, but just understand those decisions have consequences. You testify in front of Congress a fair amount. I mean, is, is, is our political leadership aligned on these issues, do you think? You mentioned bipartisan support for Trump in the... Yeah, no, I, I do. I think there's actually quite a bit on, on, on some of these issues, at least. There's, there's, there's a growing consensus in terms of concern. So, for example, if you talk to a bipartisan group of senators on the Senate Armed Services Committee... I think that there is a growing shared understanding of the challenges we're facing. Similarly, on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, same thing in the House on both of those. So there is such a steady drumbeat coming from national security professionals before those committees about what the problems are that essentially it's undeniable at this point. The differences are what do we do about it? So reasons for optimism. Yeah. <clears throat> We have, well, four, we have four minutes. Okay, so then number one, there is shared understanding that this is a problem and that action has to be taken. So we're, that's progress. Um, two, there is broad consensus within the national security 
community about uh, the relative challenges that we're facing. Three, we do have some of the most amazing personnel in the world on these issues. I, I can't I can't underline that more heavily. I, amongst kind of political conversations about deep state and everything else, I, all that to the side, the professionals in the Department of Defense and the intelligence community and the law enforcement community, 99% of those people are out there just getting the job done. Um, they're the people I loved working with. They're the people I continue to advocate for. And um, they're people with whom Americans should feel safe in trusting their security to. And the, uh, the is, we, we have the people, give me an example of, of a success that you've had with this, with this group uh, recently. Uh, well, okay, I mean, if I can, I'll go back to, I'll go back to the 5G point. I mean, that, to get that point across, because it, it is a significant economic implication. Yeah. That has required um, a comprehensive approach, both in terms of uh, intelligence analysis, so the secret stuff that we know about intentions and capabilities, um, government agencies coming together to think about how we can begin to approach that, the civil society sector, like the Heritage Foundation, talking about this in ways that uh, are meaningful to Congress so they can take action and in informing the executive. Um, industry being responsive and sharing information and helping us understand how did we get here and what would yeah. need to be done. So these things are, we have this capacity. We're not helpless. Um, it just always comes down to, you know, commitment and an intention. So we didn't talk about two things that I really wanted to get into with you. Actually, we didn't talk about 30 or 40 <laughs> things right. I wanted yeah. to get into. That's right. But we'll, we'll, we'll resolve that by having you back. Great. Uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Are we still a leader in that? Uh, in many ways, yes. Um, the, the two big dogs on, on AI are definitely the U.S. and China. Uh, the short answer, or the, the, the kind of basic way to understand that is, one, the discovery itself largely happened in 2012. That's when AI really kind of took a giant leap forward. And now the race is about implementation. And in that race, China is showing real advantages because it has a lot of data, and it has virtually unrestricted access to that data. Uh, whereas the United States has less data that it's collecting and more restrictions. What happened in 2012? That's when the computer science community kind of pivoted away from what was then called the expert model of training AI algorithms to machine learning. The short side of that is we used to have to teach in detail an algorithm, you know, if you're doing an, uh, an image recognition, these are all the features that make up a cat, and, and the features would be innumerable. With machine learning, we essentially just pointed it at a data stack of a bunch of pictures of cats and said, that's a cat, that's not a cat. And then it determined for itself what yeah. those features were and became really, really sharp and really, really um, accurate. Interesting. Well, I also want to talk about quantum computing and biosciences. So we're out of time. <laughs> you have to come back. Okay, we'll, happy we'll, to do it. We'll dig into it. Well, that's it for now. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you back on the next Bill Walton Show. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.